Good morning, church. It's um, really good to see you today. It's so exciting to see everything being set up out there for the festival. If you're online, I invite you to come along and hang out with us outside later on. It will be really good. If I haven't met you before, I'm Ben. I'm the community pastor here. And we're coming towards the end of a series called A Light Has Dawned, Advent in Isaiah. And we've been spending time in this book looking at promises that were spoken 700 years before Jesus' arrival about his advent, his arrival in human history. And as we spend our time together today, we'll be looking at Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 11. So I'd encourage you, if you've got your Bible or your app on your phone, to open up to Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 11. And as we enter into this section this morning, a significant shift has occurred in the book of Isaiah. So in chapters 1 to 39, where we've been spending our time so far, Isaiah has been speaking to his contemporaries in Judah and Jerusalem in the 8th century. It's been mainly a message of gloomy judgment. He's been saying to them, if you do not repent, God will judge you. He will exile you. He will use these kingdoms of Assyria and Babylon to judge you. So where he was speaking was just around this area here in the 8th century. But as we come to chapter 40, a significant shift occurs. God gives Isaiah a vision and a message for those later on down the track who have actually been exiled. And he's speaking to exiles in Babylon in the 6th century. Chapters 1 to 39, we're over here speaking to these guys saying you will be exiled. And now we've moved to the 6th century in Babylon where the exiles are. Now, can we just imagine for a moment what it might have been like for the exiles? Imagine living in Jerusalem. You've created a home for yourself. You've got a family. You're enjoying life. And then this threat comes. Babylon is on their way. They put the city to siege. You're in there for months. Food is running out. People are starving. People are dying. A breach is made in the walls. Soldiers are streaming into the city. There's people screaming. There's people being killed. And your family is taken out of the city and taken captive by the Babylonians. I mean, it's a devastating situation. The city was burned. It was destroyed. And here's a poem that Jeremiah wrote after the destruction of Jerusalem. It gives you an insight into how people were feeling. And he writes as if Jerusalem is a woman, and she's saying this in Lamentations 1. See, Lord, how distressed I am. I am in torment within, and in my heart I am disturbed, for I have been most rebellious. Outside the sword bereaves, inside there is only death. People have heard my groaning, but there is no one to comfort me. There is no one to comfort me. Have you ever felt like that before? Maybe a situation or a circumstance in your life that was so bad that you just felt like there was no comfort available? Well, that's how these Jerusalemites were feeling, these exiles. They were, their city was destroyed and then they were marched 1,200 kilometers to Babylon, to a foreign land or a place far, far away from home. 
And as they were marched into one of the superpowers of the world's city at that time, they would have seen this. We'll put this up on the screen now. This is the Ishtar Gate, and I took these photos in Berlin and Germany at a museum. This is one of the smaller gates that was part of the city of Babylon. So archaeologists in modern-day Iraq uncovered pieces. They end up being taken to Germany back last century. And so if you go there to the museum, you'll see there's faded pieces, which are the originals, and then they've made a bunch of replicas as well to be able to reconstruct what one of the gates would have looked like. And the Ishtar Gate was one of the gates as part of a procession that led into Babylon. And so you can imagine the exiles being taken as prisoners through this procession of these grand walls and these grand gates with all these foreign gods painted over them. And they would have felt intimidated, hopeless, tiny, weak, and uncomforted. It would have been a terrible situation. Now, maybe you haven't been through something like that, but maybe you can relate to that feeling of being comfortless and hopeless and powerless. Maybe you're feeling that today. Maybe for you, it's a a sin issue in your life. You know it's not right, but you can't seem to get on top of it. It seems to keep defeating you. Or maybe you've given up fighting because it's just too difficult. Maybe for you, it's a marriage breakdown that's going on or a relationship breakdown. And it's just so hard and so difficult that when you look at it, it just feels hopeless. Maybe for you, it's been the pandemic. Maybe you've lost a business. Maybe you've been separated from loved ones for a long time. And it makes you feel hopeless. Maybe if you're honest, you've said something like what Israel says in verse 27 of our chapter this morning. They said, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. I wonder if that's you today. Our world is full of beauty and brokenness. So whether you're a Christian or not, at some stage or another, we're going to be confronted with sad and hopeless situations. And Isaiah has an important claim for us to consider this morning. He says to you and to me, there is a comforter. There is a comforter for every difficulty you could possibly face in this world. And as we open up Isaiah 40 together, there are four comforting promises he gives to the exiles in Babylon and to us. And the first is this. He says, God is not against you. God is not against you. Verses 1 to 2. The exiles felt like they had been abandoned by God, but God says otherwise. Verses 1 to 2, it says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The exiles felt abandoned, but God calls them my people in verse 1. God's discipline is only ever temporary for his people, but his comfort is never-ending. 
And God comforts the exiled people of Jerusalem by telling them that their sin has been paid for. Enough is enough, says God. I'm going to comfort you now. Now, you might still be stuck on verse 2, where it says, She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Doesn't that sound unfair? Well, the Bible is very clear that God is just. What's not so unclear, though, is that word double in that verse. The original Hebrew word for that is a difficult one to interpret. It only comes up three times in the whole Old Testament. So there's not a lot of data or information on it to help us to really understand what it means all the time. It can mean double or it can mean two sides. So the other possibility is that Israel has experienced the other side of the coin, the exact measurement of judgment that their sins deserved. Either way, God says, your sins have been paid for. It's done. You're forgiven. I'm not against you. I'm here to comfort you. I wonder if you've ever felt like God is against you. Maybe like the exiles, your circumstances seemed to say that God had abandoned you, that God is against you. I wonder if you believe that in any way this morning or online with us. Because Satan would love for us to believe that. He would love for us to think that. But the voice of God in the gospel says that Jesus has paid your sin debt. That God is so utterly for you and for me that before we even ask, he took our sin debt off us and paid for it at the cross. Imagine for a moment you've got a mortgage on a house, you've got a big loan, and you get into some financial difficulty. Now, what would you do in that situation? Maybe you'd go and try and renegotiate your debts with the bank. You'd speak to them, say, can I get a lower interest rate? Can we pause repayments? Something like that. But imagine that situation, a letter arrives in the mail from the bank, and it just says, the owner cares about you a lot, so they've personally paid all your debts off. You have no more debt. Please accept this as a gift. That would be unbelievable, right? That's exactly what God has done for us in Christ. But so many of us, we keep trying to renegotiate our debts with God. We keep trying to say, if you can just change the payment schedule and we can just pay a little bit less and over time I'll be able to pay you back and I'll be able to make things right. And God just says, I've paid your debts, you're forgiven. Accept it as a gift. God is not frowning over you if you are in Christ. He is not holding a debt over your head. You've been set free. It has been paid for in Jesus. God is not against you. He does discipline us, but his discipline is temporary and his comfort is eternal. And he accepts us in whatever mess we find ourselves in right now. In fact, he took responsibility for our mess in Jesus so that his message to anyone who comes to him will not be judgment, but comfort. Only comfort. Let God speak that word over your hearts tenderly this morning. Comfort. 
comfort my people, says your God. The first promise in Isaiah 40 is that God is not against you. The second promise Isaiah gives the exiles is that God will come for you. God will come for you. Verses 3 to 5. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Put up an image of the screen now of the route Nebuchadnezzar would have taken from Babylon to Jerusalem to destroy it and on the way back again. It's around 1,200 kilometers. It's a long way, one way. Now, as you can see on the screen on the map, there's a more direct route through here. This is the wilderness. This is the desert between Babylon and Jerusalem. And so it's as if Isaiah is saying to the exiles in verses 3 to 5 that God is coming to rescue you and he's going to prepare a highway in the wilderness. A direct route will be created and every obstacle will be removed. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill be made low. He will flatten and level the whole landscape which is picture language to say nothing will stop God from taking his people home. Nothing will stop God from rescuing them. God will come for them. He will rescue them. Now, this might be uncomfortable, but just bear with me for a moment. I want you to think of the most difficult situation in your life right now. What is the thing that weighs you down the most? What is the most difficult thing in your life right now? Let me ask, is this situation too difficult for God to rescue you from? Is the mountain too high for God Almighty to level? Is the valley too deep for God Almighty to raise? His promise in these verses is that God will come for you. Anything is possible for God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill be made low. Nothing will stop God coming to rescue his people. And whether it's in this life or in the next when Jesus returns, he will rescue us from sin and despair and sadness. He will come for you. Nothing's going to stop him. No obstacle is too great. No situation is too full of despair for God to overcome it. The Apostle Paul, one of the leaders in the early church, once said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now that's a big claim. But this came from a guy who went through a lot. Beatings, imprisonment, shipwrecks. And he could see Jesus' return on the horizon. And as he looked on that horizon, he could see the renewal of all things coming. He could see a new body being given to him, a new home, a new earth, 
peaceful relationships with all people. And he said, it's not even a matter of just saying, that's going to be better. He said, it's not even worth comparing with the sufferings I'm going through right now. It's not just better, it's incomparable. And it gave him the gusto to keep on going and to keep preaching the gospel and to keep doing the work that God had called him to do in this broken world. God will come for you. Now, maybe that still sounds too good to be true. Maybe the mountain in front of you feels too big and the valley too deep for you to believe that is true. I mean, the exiles probably felt the same way. Huge walls surrounding them in Babylon, captive to one of the superpowers of the world in that day. Their city was filled with false gods. Apparently, there was this inscription to their main god, Marduk, all around the place, glory to Marduk, glory to Marduk, glory to Marduk. They must have felt stupid to believe in their god. But the person who trusts God's word against every human odd is not a fool. Because Isaiah's third promise is that God's word is unfailing. It is unfailing. That's what we're told in verses 6 to 8, where it says, A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows in them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. I love this image. The The exiles were captive to Babylon in this impressive pagan city and they were feeling hopeless, intimidated, comfortless, And it's like God just comes on the scene and he says, oh, Babylon? Not a big deal. They're like grass. They're like the flowers of the field. They fade by the time it's the next day. All he needs to do is pick up Babylon like a bit of grass and it's gone. It's nothing to him. God is not intimidated by what we're intimidated by. God is not impressed by what we're impressed by. Babylon is nothing to him. Comparing Babylon to him is like comparing a molehill to Mount Everest. It's nothing. He's saying, trust in my word. My word is failing. All the peoples, all the powers are like grass, but my word will endure. I mean, if you try to visit Babylon today, you'll find ruins. You try to visit ancient Rome, which persecuted the Christians there, you'll find ruins. But the word of God has endured and flourished. I mean, think about this for a moment. Could the exiles in Babylon ever have imagined that their tiny little scroll from Isaiah would be kept and recorded and copied painstakingly year after year after year until finally it makes it all the way to the opposite side of the world and there's this Australian reading from it and preaching on it. They could never have imagined that in Babylon while they were slaves to this huge empire. God's word 
has continued. He was not lying when he said, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You can trust God. You can trust his word. You can trust his promises. God's word is unfailing. You know, around 600 years after the exile, the apostle Peter quoted these same verses to encourage persecuted Christians in the Roman Empire. And he linked them to the gospel. His claim was that the word of our God, which endures forever, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, you might be ridiculed for believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You may be shamed or snubbed or even pitied. But the people and powers who reject the gospel as nonsense today will wither like the grass. They come and they go. They grow up and they fade away. But the gospel will continue, just as it has over the last 2,000 years, despite opposition. God's word is unfailing. And by the way, God did fulfill his promise to rescue the exiles. Just as in chapters 1 to 39, he'd been promising them judgment if they didn't repent, he ended up using Babylon to execute his judgment, take them into exile. Now he's promising that he will come for them. And he ended up raising up the kingdom of Persia, which defeated Babylon and released the exiles to go home. God fulfilled his promise. God's word is unfailing. Now maybe you're still sitting there thinking, I'm glad you believe, Ben. I'm glad you're confident about this, but I just don't have that kind of faith. Like, How can I really stake my life on this gospel that you believe in? And the short answer to that question is because of the resurrection. You see, humans, along with all of their words and promises, fade and wither like the grass of the field. Why? Because of death. Death comes for us all. Ecclesiastes says we're like a breath that vanishes in a moment. But Jesus is unlike any other human being. He made promises, and then he conquered the great undoer of human promises. He conquered death. He rose from the grave. You see, unlike other religions and spiritualities, Christianity steps out on a limb and makes historical claims about what God has done in our world. Other religions, other spiritualities will come from people's experience or a dream or a vision or they'll tell you, God said this and I've written this down and you need to believe it. But Christianity makes historical claims about what God has done in our world, claims that can be scrutinized and studied. And chief among them is the resurrection. It just doesn't make sense to say that the resurrection was an elaborate lie. Unless you just write off God from the outset and you claim that this world came from nothing, then the most plausible explanation for the empty tomb is the resurrection. I mean, think about it. It doesn't make sense if it was an elaborate lie. If it was, a body was never produced to quell this myth. Jews in the first century believed in a physical resurrection. We can't just say it was symbolic. They were just sort of talking symbolically. It's a metaphor. That's patronizing. The Jews believed in a physical resurrection. 
They knew that dead people stayed dead. But they claimed that Jesus rose from the grave. And if the Gospels were just an elaborate lie to make up Jesus as the Messiah and the one who rose from the grave, they're terrible PR for the apostles. I mean, if I was Pete, I'd say, hey, can you please delete that part where I say confidently I'm going to follow Jesus and then I'm before, a few, few hours later I'm cowering before a servant girl denying him? Or Thomas might have said, hey, can you please delete that part where I'm the last apostle to believe that Jesus has risen from the dead so I don't become known as Doubting Thomas for the rest of church history? Terrible PR because they're writing things as they actually happen. They're writing a truthful account of what happened. Lastly, they recorded that women were the first witnesses of the resurrection. Not a big deal for us today, but in the first century, the culture was sexist. And they didn't accept the testimony of women as evidence. It'd be like today if some five-year-olds saw a crime scene unfold. They wouldn't be called on as witnesses. And it's the same thing back then. So if they wanted to make an elaborate lie, they wouldn't have had women as their star witnesses. But they were. Jesus chose women to be his first witnesses to his resurrection. And lastly, the apostles didn't gain riches or fame in their lifetime for keeping this message going. They died painful and excruciating deaths. They believed that Jesus rose from the grave. The resurrection tells us that God's word is unfailing. We can trust it. And this gives us the boldness to declare the gospel to others. Even if it's foolish in their eyes, we can tell them that God has come in Jesus. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. And that one day... He will return not only to rescue us from our difficulties, but to gently lead us into a new home of peace and joy and gladness. And in fact, it's that very announcement that is the fourth and final promise of our passage. Isaiah says, God will carry you home. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. These verses announce the scene of God's return from Babylon with the exiles. He's traveled through the highway in the desert. He's defeated Babylon. And he's carrying home to Jerusalem the spoils of war. And in this case, his reward from the battle are the exiles themselves. Their mighty conquering king is carrying them home to Jerusalem. But then the image moves away from focusing on his power and concentrates on his gentleness for his people. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. It's a good verse to memorize for young mothers. God is the most comforting person in the world. God is not just the kind of person that gives you particular kinds of comforts. For example, he's not just the kind of comforter that you only go to when you need a hug. 
like a warm grandfather who's kind but weak. And he's not just the kind of person you go to to get you out of trouble, like a powerful king who's able to do it but isn't very approachable. God is powerful and gentle. God is strong and he's kind. He's mighty and he's caring. He's the most comforting person in the world. And no matter what you're going through right now, there really is a comforter to every difficulty you face in life. And in the most difficult or intimidating circumstances, he calls for us to announce this good news to the world, to not be intimidated or embarrassed about the gospel, but to believe and trust in God's good news to us. He says, lift up your voice with a shout, lift it up. Do not be afraid, do not be embarrassed, do not be worried. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. You know, this is exactly what we get to do this afternoon at our Christmas festival. People from the community will be coming in and they'll be coming into the carols and they'll be able to hear about the good news of Jesus. And maybe this afternoon you'll get an opportunity to talk to someone about Jesus and to talk to someone about the gospel. In fact, I encourage you, pray if you're willing that God, give me an opportunity to speak to someone this afternoon. Be bold. And I'm not talking about being pushy or obnoxious, because we don't have to twist arms to save people. God will save his people. But we can have a cheerful confidence in the gospel, because the best news in the world is also true. It's also trustworthy. Jesus has come for us. We celebrate this every Christmas, and Jesus is coming again to finally banish Satan, sin, and death from this world and carry us into a new world of joy and peace and humaneness. So what is it that makes you feel hopeless? What circumstances make you feel powerless? Isaiah's message for you and for me today is that there is a comforter. There is a comforter for every difficulty that you face in life. And guess what? It's God. God is not against you. God will come for you. God's word is unfailing. And God will carry you home personally and gently. There is nothing too difficult, too big or nasty that he cannot handle. He is the most comforting person in the world. He is powerful enough to deal with our greatest enemies and gentle enough to heal all our wounds. He died in your place and paid your sin debt. He's risen from the grave and conquered death. Why would we go anywhere else in our time of need? Let me finish with these words from 2 Corinthians. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. Let's pray together. Father, you are incredible. You cannot be put into a box. 
You are everything we need. You are powerful and mighty and just. You are able to do what needs to be done. You are able to heal this world and to rescue us. But yet you are gentle. Gentle and lowly in heart. Humble. You come down to our level. And you comfort us. For this we just, we praise you this morning Lord. We worship you in this place. And we pray that you'd fill our hearts afresh with this gospel of your love and your goodness to us in Jesus. Thank you for forgiving us all of our debts, that you've set us free. Thank you that you will come for us. Thank you that we can trust you. Lord, we pray that we can be your hands and feet, your salt and light, your people today and this afternoon in the festival. Lord, we ask that many people might find life in Jesus this afternoon. Help us to find more of that in you right now. Amen.